0: Book One, Chapter Two, Part Two of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Winterowd. Armadale, by Wilkie Collins, Chapter Two, Part Two my father's confession has told you who i am and my own confession has told you what my life has been he said addressing mr brock without taking the chair to which the rector pointed i promised to make a clean breast of it when i first asked leave to enter this room have i kept my word it is impossible to doubt it replied mr brock you have established your claim on my confidence and my sympathy i should be insensible indeed if I could know what I now know of your childhood and your youth, and not feel something of Allan's kindness for Allan's friend. "'Thank you, sir,' said Midwinter, simply and gravely. He sat down opposite Mr. Brock, at the table for the first time. "'In a few hours you will have left this place,' he proceeded. "'If I can help you to leave it with your mind at ease, I will. "'There is more to be said between us than we have said up to this time.' My future relations with Mr. Armadale are still left undecided, and the serious question raised by my father's letter is a question which we have neither of us faced yet. He paused, and looked with a momentary impatience at the candle still burning on the table, in the morning light. The struggle to speak with composure, and to keep his own feelings stoically out of view, was evidently growing harder and harder to him. It may possibly help your decision, he went on, if I tell you how I determined to act towards Mr. Armadale, in the matter of the similarity of our names, when I first read this letter, and when I had composed myself sufficiently to be able to think at all. He stopped, and cast a second impatient look at the lighted candle. "'Will you excuse the odd fancy of an odd man?' he asked, with a faint smile. "'I want to put out the candle.' I WANT TO SPEAK OF THE NEW SUBJECT IN THE NEW LIGHT. HE EXTINGUISHED THE CANDLE AS HE SPOKE, AND LET THE FIRST TENDERNESS OF THE DAYLIGHT FLOW uninterruptedly INTO THE ROOM. I MUST ONCE MORE ASK YOUR PATIENCE, HE RESUMED, IF I RETURN FOR A MOMENT TO MYSELF AND MY CIRCUMSTANCES. I HAVE ALREADY TOLD YOU THAT MY STEPFATHER MADE AN ATTEMPT TO DISCOVER ME SOME YEARS AFTER I HAD TURNED MY BACK ON THE SCOTCH SCHOOL. He took that step out of no anxiety of his own, but simply as the agent of my father's trustees. In the exercise of their discretion, they had sold the estates in Barbados, at the time of the emancipation of the slaves and the ruin of West Indian property, for what the estates would fetch. Having invested the proceeds, they were bound to set aside a sum for my yearly education. This responsibility obliged them to make the attempt to trace me, a fruitless attempt, as you now know. A little later, as I have been since informed, I was publicly addressed by an advertisement in the newspapers, which I never saw. Later still, when I was twenty-one, a second advertisement appeared, which I did see, offering a reward for evidence of my death. If I was alive, I had a right to my half-share of the proceeds of the estates on coming of age. If dead, the money reverted to my mother." I WENT TO THE LAWYERS, AND HEARD FROM THEM WHAT I HAVE JUST TOLD YOU. AFTER SOME DIFFICULTY IN PROVING MY IDENTITY, AND AFTER AN INTERVIEW WITH MY stepfather AND A MESSAGE FROM MY MOTHER WHICH HAS HOPELESSLY WIDENED THE OLD BREACH BETWEEN US, MY CLAIM WAS ALLOWED, AND MY MONEY IS NOW INVESTED FOR ME IN THE FUNDS UNDER THE NAME THAT IS REALLY MY OWN. MR. Brock grew eagerly nearer to the table. HE SAW THE END NOW TO WHICH THE SPEAKER WAS TENDING twice a year midwinter pursued i must sign my own name to get my own income at all other times and under all other circumstances i may hide my identity under any name i please as osias midwinter mr armadale first knew me as osias midwinter he shall know me to the end of my days whatever may be the result of this interview whether i win your confidence or whether i lose it of one thing you may feel sure your pupil shall never know the horrible secret which i have trusted to your keeping this is no extraordinary resolution for as you have known already it cost me no sacrifice of feeling to keep my assumed name there is nothing in my conduct to praise it comes naturally out of the gratitude of a thankful man review the circumstances for yourself sir and set my own horror of revealing them to mr armadale out of the question if the story of the names is ever told there can be no limiting it to the disclosure of my father's crime it must go back to the story of mrs armadale's marriage i have heard her son talk of her i know how he loves her memory as god is my witness he shall never love it less dearly through me simply as the words were spoken they touched the deepest sympathy in the rector's nature they took his thoughts back to mrs armadale's deathbed. there sat the man against whom she had ignorantly warned him in her son's interest, and that man of his own free will had laid on himself the obligation of respecting her secret for her son's sake. The memory of his own past efforts to destroy the very friendship out of which this resolution had sprung rose and reproached Mr. Brock. He held out his hand to midwinter for the first time. In her name, and in her son's name, he said warmly, I thank you. Without replying, Midwinter spread the confession open before him on the table. "'I think I have said all that it was my duty to say,' he began, "'before we could approach the consideration of this letter. "'Whatever may have appeared strange in my conduct toward you and toward Mr. Armadale, "'may now be trusted to explain itself. "'You can easily imagine the natural curiosity and surprise that I must have felt, "'ignorant as I then was of the truth,' when the sound of Mr. Armadale's name first startled me as the echo of my own. You will readily understand that I only hesitated to tell him I was his namesake, because I hesitated to damage my position, in your estimation, if not in his, by confessing that I had come among you under an assumed name. And after all that you have just heard of my vagabond life and my low associates, you will hardly wonder at the obstinate silence I maintained about myself at a time when I did not feel the sense of responsibility which my father's confession has laid on me. We can return to those small personal explanations, if you wish, at another time. They cannot be suffered to keep us from the greater interests, which we must settle before you leave this place. We may come now. His voice faltered, and he suddenly turned his face toward the window, so as to hide it from the rector's view. We may come now, he repeated, his hand trembling visibly as it held the page, to the murder on board the timber-ship, and to the warning that has followed me from my father's grave. Softly, as if he feared they might reach Alan, sleeping in the neighbouring room, he read the last terrible words which the Scotchman's pen had written at Wildbad, as they fell from his father's lips. Avoid the widow of the man I killed, if the widow still lives. Avoid the maid whose wicked hand smoothed the way to the marriage, if the maid is still in her service. And more than all, avoid the man who bears the same name as your own. Offend your best benefactor, if that benefactor's influence has connected you one with the other. Desert the woman who loves you, if that woman is a link between you and him. Hide yourself from him under an assumed name. Put the mountains and the seas between you. Be ungrateful, be unforgiving, Be all that is most repellent to your own gentler nature, rather than live under the same roof and breathe the same air with that man. Never let the two Alan Armadales meet in this world. Never, never, never. After reading those sentences, he pushed the manuscript from him without looking up. The fatal reserve, which he had been in a fair way of conquering but a few minutes since, possessed itself of him once more. Again his eyes wandered, again his voice sank in tone a stranger who had heard his story and who saw him now would have said his look is lurking his manner is bad he is every inch of him his father's son i have a question to ask you said mr brock breaking the silence between them on his side why have you just read that passage in your father's letter to force me into telling you the truth was the answer you must know how much there is of my father in me before you trust me to be Mr. Armadale's friend. I got my letter yesterday in the morning. Some inner warning troubled me, and I went down on the seashore by myself before I broke the seal. Do you believe the dead can come back to the world they once lived in? I believe my father came back in that bright morning light, through the glare of that broad sunshine and the roar of that joyful sea, and watched me while I read when I got to the words that you have just heard, and when I knew that the very end which he had died dreading was the end that had really come, I felt the horror that had crept over him in his last moments creeping over me. I struggled against myself, as he would have had me struggle. I tried to be all that was most repellent to my own gentler nature. I tried to think pitilessly of putting the mountains and the seas between me and the man who bore my name. Hours passed before I could prevail on myself to go back and run the risk of meeting Alan Armadale in this house. When I did get back, and when he met me at night on the stairs, I thought I was looking him in the face as my father looked his father in the face when the cabin door closed between them. Draw your own conclusions, sir. Say, if you like, that the inheritance of my father's heathen belief in fate is one of the inheritances he has left to me. I won't dispute it. I won't deny that all through yesterday his superstition was my superstition. The night came before I could find my way to calmer and brighter thoughts. But I did find my way. You may set it down in my favor that I lifted myself at last above the influence of this horrible letter. Do you know what helped me? Did you reason with yourself? I can't reason about what I feel. Did you quiet your mind by prayer? I was not fit to pray. And yet something guided you to the better feeling and the truer view? Something did. What was it? My love for Alan Armadale. He cast a doubting, almost a timid look at Mr. Brock as he gave that answer, and suddenly leaving the table, went back to the window seat. "'Have I no right to speak of him in that way?' he asked, keeping his face hidden from the rector. "'Have I not known him long enough? Have I not done enough for him yet?' Remember what my experience of other men had been when I first saw his hand held out to me, when I first heard his voice speaking to me in my sick-room. What had I known of strangers' hands all through my childhood? I had only known them as hands raised to threaten and to strike me. His hand put my pillow straight and patted me on the shoulder and gave me my food and drink. What had I known of other men's voices when I was growing up to be a man myself? I had only known them as voices that jeered, voices that cursed, voices that whispered in corners with a vile distrust. His voice said to me, "'Cheer up, Midwinter. We'll soon bring you round again. You'll be strong enough in a week to go out for a drive with me in our Somersetshire Lanes. Think of the gipsy stick. Think of the devils laughing at me when I went by their windows with my little dead dog in my arms.' Think of the master who cheated me of my month's salary on his deathbed, and ask your own heart if the miserable wretch whom Alan Armadale has treated as his equal and his friend has said too much in saying that he loves him. I do love him. It will come out of me. I can't keep it back. I love the very ground he treads on. I would give my life, yes, the life that is precious to me now, because his kindness has made it a happy one. I tell you, I would give my life, The next words died away on his lips. The hysterical passion rose and conquered him. He stretched out one of his hands with a wild gesture of entreaty to Mr. Brock. His head sank on the windowsill, and he burst into tears. Even then, the hard discipline of the man's life asserted itself. He expected no sympathy. He counted on no merciful human respect for human weakness. The cruel necessity of self-suppression was present to his mind, while the tears were pouring over his cheeks. Give me a minute, he said faintly. I'll fight it down in a minute. I won't distress you in this way again. True to his resolution, in a minute he had fought it down. In a minute more, he was able to speak calmly. We will get back, sir, to those better thoughts, which have brought me from my room to yours, he resumed. I can only repeat that I should never have torn myself from the hold which this letter fastened on me, if I had not loved Alan Armadale with all that I have in me of a brother's love. I said to myself, if the thought of leaving him breaks my heart, the thought of leaving him is wrong. That was some hours since, and I am in the same mind still. I can't believe, I won't believe, that a friendship which has grown out of nothing but kindness on one side, and nothing but gratitude on the other, is destined to leave to an evil end. Judge, you who are a clergyman, between the dead father, whose word is in these pages, and the living son, whose word is now on his lips. What is it appointed me to do, now that I am breathing the same air, and living under the same roof, with the son of the man whom my father killed? To perpetuate my father's crime, by mortally injuring him? Or to atone for my father's crime, by giving him the devotion of my whole life? The last of these two faiths is my faith and shall be my faith, happen what may. In the strength of that better conviction, I have come here to trust you with my father's secret, and to confess the wretched story of my own life. In the strength of that better conviction, I can face you resolutely with the one plain question which marks the one plain end of all that I have come here to say. Your pupil stands at the starting point of his new career, in a position singularly friendless." HIS ONE GREAT NEED IS A COMPANION OF HIS OWN AGE ON WHOM HE CAN RELY. THE TIME HAS COME, SIR, TO DECIDE WHETHER I AM TO BE THAT COMPANION OR NOT. AFTER ALL YOU HAVE HEARD OF OSIAS MIDWINTER, TELL ME PLAINLY. WILL YOU TRUST HIM TO BE Allan Armadale's FRIEND? MR. BROCK MET THAT FEARLESSLY FRANK QUESTION BY A FEARLESS FRANKNESS ON HIS SIDE. I BELIEVE YOU LOVE Allan," HE SAID, AND I BELIEVE YOU HAVE SPOKEN THE TRUTH. A man who has produced that impression on me is a man whom I am bound to trust. I trust you. Midwinter started to his feet, his dark face flushing deep, his eyes fixed brightly and steadily at last on the rector's face. A light, he exclaimed, tearing the pages of his father's letter one by one from the fastening that held them. Let us destroy the last link that holds us to the horrible past. Let us see this confession a heap of ashes before we part. Wait, said Mr. Brock. Before you burn it, there is a reason for looking at it once more. The parted leaves of the manuscript dropped from Midwinter's hands. Mr. Brock took them up and sorted them carefully until he found the last page. I view your father's superstition as you view it, said the rector. But there is a warning given you here which you will do well, for Allan's sake and for your own sake, not to neglect. The last link with the past will not be destroyed when you have burned these pages. One of the actors in this story of treachery and murder is not dead yet. Read those words. He pushed the page across the table with his finger on one sentence. Midwinter's agitation misled him. He mistook the indication and read, Avoid the widow of the man I killed, if the widow still lives. Not that sentence, said the rector. The next. Midwinter read it. Avoid the maid whose wicked hand smoothed the way to the marriage if the maid is still in her service. The maid and the mistress parted, said Mr. Brock, at the time of the mistress's marriage. The maid and the mistress met again at Mrs. Armadale's residence in Somersetshire last year. I myself met the woman in the village, and I myself know that her visit hastened Mrs. Armadale's death. Wait a little and compose yourself. I see I have startled you. He waited as he was bid, his color fading away to a gray paleness and the light in his clear brown eyes dying out slowly. What the Vector had said had produced no transient impression on him. There was more than doubt. There was alarm in his face as he sat lost in his own thought. Was the struggle of the past night renewing itself already? Did he feel the horror of his hereditary superstition creeping over him again? Can you put me on my guard against her, he asked, after a long interval of silence? Can you tell me her name? I can only tell you what Mrs. Armadale told me, answered Mr. Brock. The woman acknowledged having been married in the long interval since she and her mistress had last met, but not a word more escaped her about her past life. She came to Mrs. Armadale to ask for money under a plea of distress. She got the money, and she left the house, positively refusing, when the question was put to her, to mention her married name. You saw her yourself in the village. What was she like? She kept her veil down. I can't tell you. You can tell me what you did see. Certainly. I saw, as she approached me, that she moved very gracefully, that she had a beautiful figure— and that she was a little over the middle height. I noticed, when she asked me the way to Mrs. Armadale's house, that her manner was the manner of a lady, and that the tone of her voice was remarkably soft and winning. Lastly, I remember afterward that she wore a thick black veil, a black bonnet, a black silk dress, and a red paisley shawl. I feel all the importance of your possessing some better means of identifying her than I can give you, but unhappily he stopped. Midwinter was leaning eagerly across the table, and Midwinter's hand was laid suddenly on his arm. Is it possible that you know the woman? asked Mr. Brock, surprised at the sudden change in his manner. No. What have I said, then, that has startled you so? Do you remember the woman who threw herself from the river steamer? asked the other. The woman who caused that succession of deaths which opened Alan Armadale's way to the Thorpe Ambrose estate? "'I remember the description of her in the police report,' answered the rector. "'That woman,' pursued Midwinter, "'moved gracefully, and had a beautiful figure. "'That woman wore a black veil, a black bonnet, "'a black silk gown, and a red paisley shawl.' "'He stopped, released his hold of Mr. Brock's arm, "'and abruptly resumed his chair. "'Can it be the same?' he said to himself in a whisper, "'Is there a fatality that follows men in the dark? And is it following us in that woman's footsteps?' If the conjecture was right, the one event in the past which had appeared to be entirely disconnected with the events that had preceded it was, on the contrary, the one missing link which made the chain complete. Mr. Brock's comfortable common sense instinctively denied that startling conclusion." He looked at Midwinter with a compassionate smile. My young friend, he said kindly, have you cleared your mind of all superstition as completely as you think? Is what you have just said worthy of the better resolution at which you arrived last night? Midwinter's head drooped on his breast. The color rushed back over his face. He sighed bitterly. You are beginning to doubt my sincerity, he said. I can't blame you. "'I believe in your sincerity as firmly as ever,' answered Mr. Brock. "'I only doubt whether you have fortified the weak places in your nature "'as strongly as you yourself suppose. "'Many a man has lost the battle against himself far oftener than you have lost it yet, "'and has nevertheless won his victory in the end. "'I don't blame you. I don't distrust you. "'I only notice what has happened to put you on your guard against yourself. "'Come, come.' Let your own better sense help you and you will agree with me that there is really no evidence to justify the suspicion that the woman whom i met in somersetshire and the woman who attempted suicide in london are one and the same need an old man like me remind a young man like you that there are thousands of women in england with beautiful figures thousands of women who are quietly dressed in black silk gowns and red paisley shawls midwinter caught eagerly at the suggestion too eagerly, as if it might have occurred to a harder critic on humanity than Mr. Brock. You are quite right, sir, he said, and I am quite wrong. Tens of thousands of women answer the description, as you say. I have been wasting time on my own idle fancies when I ought to have been carefully gathering up facts. If this woman ever attempts to find her way to Allen, I must be prepared to stop her. He began searching restlessly among the manuscript leaves scattered about the table paused over one of the pages and examined it attentively this helps me to something positive he went on this helps me to a knowledge of her age she was twelve at the time of mrs armadale's marriage add a year and bring her to thirteen add allan's age twenty-two and we make her a woman of five-and-thirty at the present time i know her age and i know that she has her own reasons for being silent about her married life this is something gained at the outset and it may lead in time to something more. He looked up brightly again at Mr. Brock. Am I in the right way now, sir? Am I doing my best to profit by the caution which you have kindly given me? You are vindicating your own better sense, answered the rector, encouraging him to trample down his own imagination with an Englishman's ready distrust of the noblest of the human faculties. You are paving the way for your own happier life. Am I? "'said the other thoughtfully. "'He searched among the papers once more, "'and stopped at another of the scattered pages. "'The ship!' he explained, suddenly, "'his color changing again, "'and his manner altering on the instant. "'What ship?' asked the rector. "'The ship in which the deed was done,' "'Midwinter answered, "'with the first signs of impatience "'that he had shown yet. "'The ship in which my father's murderous hand "'turned the lock of the cabin door.' what of it said mr brock he appeared not to hear the question his eyes remained fixed intently on the page that he was reading a french vessel employed in the timber trade he said still speaking to himself a french vessel named la grace de dieu if my father's belief had been the right belief if the fatality had been following me step by step from my father's grave in one or another of my voyages I SHOULD HAVE FALLEN IN WITH THAT SHIP." HE LOOKED UP AGAIN AT MR. BROCK. I AM QUITE SURE ABOUT IT NOW, HE SAID. THOSE WOMEN ARE TWO, AND NOT ONE. MR. BROCK SHOOK HIS HEAD. I AM GLAD YOU HAVE COME TO THAT CONCLUSION, HE SAID, BUT I WISH YOU HAD REACHED IT IN SOME OTHER WAY. MIDWINTER STARTED PASSIONATELY TO HIS FEET, AND SEIZING ON THE PAGES OF THE MANUSCRIPT WITH BOTH HANDS, FLUNG THEM INTO THE EMPTY FIREPLACE. "'For God's sake, let me burn it!' he exclaimed. "'As long as there is a page left, I shall read it. "'And as long as I read it, my father gets the better of me, in spite of myself.' Mr. Brock pointed to the match-box. In another moment the confession was in flames. When the fire had consumed the last morsel of paper, Midwinter drew a deep breath of relief. "'I may say, like Macbeth, "'Why so, being gone, I am a man again?' he broke out with a feverish gaiety. "'You look fatigued, sir, and no wonder,' he added in a lower tone. "'I have kept you too long from your rest. I will keep you no longer. Depend on my remembering what you have told me. Depend on my standing between Allan and any enemy, man or woman, who comes near him. Thank you, Mr. Brock. A thousand, thousand times thank you. I came into this room the most wretched of living men—' I CAN LEAVE IT NOW AS HAPPY AS THE BIRDS THAT ARE SINGING OUTSIDE. AS HE TURNED TO THE DOOR, THE RAYS OF THE RISING SUN STREAMED THROUGH THE WINDOW, AND TOUCHED THE HEAP OF ASHES LYING BLACK IN THE BLACK FIREPLACE. THE SENSITIVE IMAGINATION OF MIDWINTER KINDLED INSTANTLY AT THE SIGHT. LOOK, HE SAID JOYOUSLY, THE PROMISE OF THE FUTURE SHINING OVER THE ASHES OF THE PAST. AN INEXPLICABLE PITY FOR THE MAN, AT THE MOMENT OF HIS LIFE WHEN HE NEEDED PITY LEAST, stole over the rector's heart when the door had closed, and he was left by himself again. Poor fellow, he said, with an uneasy surprise at his own compassionate impulse. Poor fellow. End of chapter two, part two. Recording by Alan Winteroud, boomcoach.blogspot.com.